your Bibles to Second Timothy. We are continuing our series on Second Timothy. Uh, we've now reached chapter four, and what very much is coming to the climax of the whole letter. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, I want to read uh, from chapter 3 verse 14 to chapter 4 verse 8, so we'll read this together. <clears throat> Again, Paul's words to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> uh, let's join our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come again to uh, look at your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may see you as you really are that you would open our ears, that we may hear and understand in the message of your truth, and that you would open our hearts, that we would not just hear it, but that we would take it to heart and be doers of this word of truth you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, in some ways, it's a, it's a hard thing for a budding preacher to preach through the book of 2 Timothy. It's a difficult thing sometimes to preach about preaching. But there we have it. Because as we look at this, it very much deals with what I, what David, what the minister is supposed to be doing. And it's hard not to look at what Paul says to Timothy and to ask the question of yourself, how do you measure up? You see, to Timothy, the book could be described as Paul's handbook for Christian ministry in the last days. 
Because Paul in it lays out for his young apprentice, Timothy, exactly what he needs to be doing as a pastor teacher in his congregation in Ephesus. And not only in Ephesus, but wherever he finds himself. As he struggles with all the various problems that he is having that we've been looking at. There's exhortations, there's warnings, there's practical advice to Timothy. But much more than all that, there is a real challenge. A challenge that comes from an aging apostle in the last months, days, we can't really be sure of his life. As Timothy has seen Paul's life, his ministry, throughout his time with him, he knows all about the challenges and the trials that will accompany, as normal, anyone who will follow in Paul's footsteps. And Timothy, as we have seen in this letter, is in great danger of giving up, of throwing in the towel because it has just got too much for him. But Paul's not going to let him go easily. And thus we have this really heartfelt letter from the apostle to young Timothy. And as we reach here in in chapter 4, as I've said, we're, we're coming to the climax of everything that Paul wants to tell Timothy. Indeed, in chapter 4, we come to the final reason for Paul writing the whole letter, as it sets out clearly for us and for Timothy. And also we see the most important instruction that he gives this young pastor teacher. In chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 5, we find Paul's final charge to Timothy for his ministry in Ephesus. Then in verses 3 and 4, we find the first reason why Timothy must carry out this charge. And finally, in verses 6 through 8, Paul gives the final reason why Timothy must continue in his ministry. So for a bit of a change, we're going to look at it in reverse order. I think to get the real sense of the the weight of this charge that Paul is laying out for Timothy, you need to see the reasons why he's writing first. As Paul lays them out. So firstly, I want to look at the reason Paul gives for Timothy to preach the word and to continue in his ministry in verses 6 through 8. You will see that in these verses, Paul refers to a time, the time of his departure, which I think we can take as a reference to his death. That's the way Paul used that word departure before. All throughout this letter, this one thing has been in Paul's mind as he's been writing to Timothy. All the instructions that he has given him, the advice he is to follow, has been with this in the back of his mind. That Paul will soon not be around. His time is coming to a close. And he has a deep concern. He's a concern for Timothy and he has a concern for the church as he leaves the scene. Will Timothy continue in his ministry? Will he continue to preach and teach the gospel? Will the church keep going? And very specifically, what will happen with the multiplication of false teachers and false teaching? Paul in verse 6 likens his current situation uh, as he's in prison to be being poured out like a drink offering. That was a sacrifice that was made uh, by pouring out the first fruits of, of probably wine uh, before the base of the altar in the Old Testament sacrificial systems. Paul sees his current imprisonment 
as a sacrifice, a very costly sacrifice, like pouring out good wine on the ground would be. He's in prison. It would be much better if Paul was out preaching, if he was out proclaiming the gospel, if he was out combating the false teachers that were wreaking havoc in the church. But he is imprisoned. But if that imprisonment then means that the gospel continues, that the word continues to be heard, then it's a sacrifice that he is willing to make. And what's more, the apostle tells us clearly that the time for his departure has come. There's no question here that Paul sees the end of his own life as something that is about to happen. How quickly is the only issue? How quickly is it going to happen? Days? Weeks? Months, perhaps? We can't really be sure. But it is worth pointing out that Paul expected to see Timothy again before the winter, if you look at verse 21. Paul does seem to be saying that his death is going to be soon. But I don't think this death that he has in mind is because of his current imprisonment. It's much more to do with what he has already done in his lifetime, in his ministry. And this is what he goes on to talk about in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul, as he so often does, uses again the language of the athlete to describe his ministry, to describe his life. He's fought the good fight throughout his life. And what's more, he sees himself as now having finished that race. What race is he talking about? Is it his life? Or is it more to do with the fact that he has completed what God has given him to do? Paul's ministry, of course, Famously, is one to the Gentiles. That was what he was. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls himself an apostle. Specifically, he is the apostle that God commissioned to the Gentiles. This ministry has taken him from being a zealous Jew who persecuted the church, who was at the stoning of Stephen, to a dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road. And from that, his entire life, his calling is to take God's message, the message of the risen Christ, to the very heart of the Gentile world. It was a calling that resulted in much suffering and hardship. As Timothy himself knew, But now Paul sees it as coming to a close. Why? Because he has done it. He has taken this message to the very heart of the Gentile world. He is in Rome. He has planted churches in Rome. And that, of course, is the center of the biggest empire of that time, the Roman Empire. He had taken it there in chains, but he had done it. And in a sense, with reaching Rome and preaching there, planting churches throughout Europe, Paul had reached the end of his race. Paul looked at his task as apostle to the Gentiles as having reached its conclusion. He had run his race. He had kept the faith. Even through all the suffering and the setbacks, even through the persecution 
and imprisonment, Paul had not been ashamed to testify about his Lord. Before government officials, before ordinary pagans in the street, before public intellectuals in Athens, before the very prison wardens who were holding him captive, he had preached the good news. And he had not wavered in his task. He had remained faithful to Christ. The big question for Timothy, as he would read this, would be, will he do the same? Through this letter, Paul has been constantly asking Timothy this question. And what's more, remember that this letter wasn't written to Timothy alone. It was written for the whole church. Would they do the same? Would they run the race? Now, says Paul, there is stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul, knowing that his race is all but over, also has this great hope of the reward that awaits him. Again, the imagery is of the athlete here. When uh, in the ancient games you won a race, you were awarded a, a crown of leaves. But the crown here that awaits Paul is when his race is over is a far greater reward. It's a crown of righteousness. Not a crown that Paul himself has earned. Not a crown that he even deserves. But one that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award him. It is a righteousness that is not Paul's own righteousness. But it has come to him from another person. From Christ. It comes from God's own purpose and grace. Look at chapter 1 verses 9 through 10. See what he says there. Paul can speak here with absolute assurance of the verdict that he will receive as he sits before that final judgment. Because he has confidence in the gospel of Christ. That gospel that tells him there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That gospel that tells him that he is justified, i.e. righteous, already by faith alone. The gospel tells him the verdict of the last day in the present. And so he already knows the verdict, even before it is given. Paul has run the race and now awaits the words from his Lord and his judge. Well done, good and faithful servant. But it's not just something for Paul. It's for Timothy as well. Indeed, it's for all of us if we too will long for his appearing. It's for that longing for a restoration of a new heavens and a new earth. For the, the coming of a judgment that will, break, that will make all things new. The hope of a rest after a long race. That crown can be Timothy's as well. But will it be? That's the question Paul leaves with Timothy. Will it be? That crown can be yours and mine, but will it be? I have to say this, but I find these words at one and the same time the most encouraging and yet the most scary words probably in the whole Bible. Because it causes me to ask the question of myself, will I finish the race? Will I run the race with perseverance? 
Now, I haven't lived that long, as long as some of you have lived. And yet I can tell you from my own personal experience that not everyone who starts finishes. Now, I'm not for a second trying to damage anyone's assurance or to, to suggest that the perseverance of the saints is somehow wrong. But what I do know is that the Christian life, and indeed more so for Timothy and for anyone in ministry or anything like that, is a long and a very hard one. And I want to finish well. I've started, but I want to finish. That's far more important. What about you? You finish the race? Even in this very letter, Paul speaks about people who had started the race... But unless they came to repentance and the knowledge of the truth, they weren't going to finish. Do you want to finish the race? Elders, deacons, you have been called to a ministry. Will you finish it? Paul has passed on the gospel baton to Timothy. And now he had to run the race. He had to keep going to the end. And pass it on again to the people who would come after him. And that remains for us as well. We have been passed this gospel baton. Are we going to run with it? But secondly, Paul also speaks of another time. A time that will come. And in many ways, as he's written in this letter, has already come to fruition uh, in verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. This is the second, or we could possibly say part of the same reason that Paul writes to Timothy. In many ways, Paul has already addressed the issue uh, in chapter 3 regarding the last days, as he lays them out, and in the way in which the false teaching and the false teachers would go and were going from bad to worse. The time that Paul speaks of is not necessarily some future event that Paul is predicting, but rather, I guess, is a guaranteed reality that Timothy will face it in his lifetime. And in many ways, he has already faced it in his experiences with the church in Ephesus where he's at. The time that Paul speaks of will be characterized by people who will not put up with sound or, better translation, healthy doctrine or teaching. In other words, the gospel will not be high on their agenda. They will instead seek, uh, instead of seeking what is healthy and which will lead them to godliness... And to continue with the race, they will go after myths. They will actively turn away from what is true. And instead, they will run after the novel, the newfangled, the latest craze or whatever. But their interest in the gospel will wane and will cease. In Ephesus, Timothy had already seen what Paul here is describing. He knew exactly what was going on. And he knew he had to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
He knew that as he preached the gospel, he was preaching a message which meant that people were called to suffer first and be glorified later. Suffering, then resurrection. But what the false teaching was saying was basically we want all the benefits of what is promised in the future here and now. They wanted the easy life. They wanted the blessed life. They wanted the prosperous life and so on. But of course the gospel did promise that but not yet. It promised it but you had to go through the refiner's fire to get there. You had to be prepared not to be ashamed of Jesus. You had to be prepared to go through the suffering. But of course the false teachers weren't really interested in any of that. And so in pursuit of their own desires they gather and multiply Uh, false teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. That's what Paul is describing. To confirm them in their own desires, to confirm them in their own prejudices, to confirm them in their own wants. And literally they get their ears tickled by these false teachers. They tell them the right things and make them supremely confident in their own desires and wants. There's no challenge of repentance. There's no need for godliness. There's no concept of holiness. No real knowledge of their sinfulness. It is quite literally easy believism. And it's very popular. Paul sees it. uh, This is what Paul's saying. He's implying here that there is an ever-increasing number of these false teachers who are appearing And they are attracting more and more people to their nice, easy, comfortable message. It sounds Christian, but it's not really. Not to mention that they are most likely attracting people in Timothy's own church. And this highlights for us a very important principle that we would do well to remember. Popularity is no measure of success. These teachers were popular. Probably very nice men. They had many devoted followers. They looked very successful. But in reality, what was happening was they were leading people away from the truth and to turn aside to myths and to lies. Why is it that the churches of the prosperity teachers are always full? Why is it that Todd Bentley and his great revival meetings, why were they always packed? Why is it when the latest or newest fad arrives within evangelicalism that there is ready and waiting a whole host of people who are ready to run after it and follow it? Why is it that people like Rob Bell, for instance, who blatantly reinterpret the Christian message to make it more acceptable, Why is it that they have best-selling books? Why is it that the church in Ephesus was in danger of abandoning the gospel for myths and for endless genealogies? Why is it that the modern church looks always to the latest and the greatest growth strategies, the latest new ideas, how to grow your church, how to be people like the church far more? Why is it that the cults in our time are growing steadily? Why is it that people 
pick their church based on what it sings and the worship experience rather than its faithfulness to the gospel and its desire to reach the lost. I am very tired of hearing about the latest crazes and strategies, and I'm not even that old. I'm tired of the endless talk of what needs to be done to reach the culture and become relevant. I am tired of seeing people doing exactly what Paul is describing here. Running after their own desires and dressing it up in pious language of God's calling. Running after myths and expecting them to solve their problems. I'm tired of hearing stories of people who have been manipulated by words of knowledge or words of prophecy. But that is the reality. For Timothy, for us in our time as well, there are many alternatives to the gospel. There are many other things out there that people would prefer to be hearing. People even in the church are driven more by consumer spirit than Holy Spirit. More by desires for popular success than the desire to suffer and remain faithful to the gospel and serve others. When it comes down to matters of popular appeal, I'm afraid the gospel will never be popular. But let us never ever make the silly assumption that it is not relevant. It is always relevant. It will always be relevant. It is relevant in every age and every time. But let's be under no illusion. In Dundee, and for Timothy in Ephesus, people won't necessarily want to hear it. And so it's into that context that Paul calls Timothy to preach. To preach the word. When so many others are running after myths, who don't want to put up with the truth, Timothy was to preach. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. There is a link here with the previous passage where Paul had called Timothy to to continue in what he had learned and firmly believed, to continue with the scriptures, which are able to equip both himself and his hearers for every good work. Now Paul calls Timothy, in the light of all this, to preach that word. The idea here is of a herald who is to announce something. Timothy is to proclaim it, to announce this word. And the word here in this context is the same word that Paul has been calling Timothy to handle carefully, to guard right throughout this letter. The gospel word. But it's more than that here, I think. For again, we see the obvious link with the previous few verses. So I think word here is the whole Bible from a gospel perspective. That is, Timothy is to preach the Bible. But if he is in Genesis or Ruth or Malachi, he is to preach Christ in all those scriptures. Let me try and illustrate what I mean. The Bible, if you like, is like a mountain range with all its its various peaks and its various valleys. In the same way, the whole Bible is the gospel. It's the whole range. 
It's the record of what God has done with his people. It is redemption. But that mountain range also has a highest peak. And it's when you stand on that highest peak that you can see the mountain range completely. That highest peak is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The thing that draws your eyes the most in any mountain range is always the highest peak. The highest peak of the Bible is Christ. And it's only when you stand on that highest peak you truly see the relevance of the whole thing. So Timothy is to preach the whole Bible from that gospel perspective. When all around him the false teachers were teaching lies and myths, Timothy was to preach the truth. To proclaim the liberating message of Christ so that people in his church will be able to know the truth that leads them to godliness. But Paul also makes this charge to Timothy, a very solemn one. For he reminds Timothy, as he carries out his ministry, as he preaches and as he teaches, he conducts it all in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Timothy can't escape the watchful eye of his Lord. When he's tempted to fear his hearers and change his message to suit them, he's to remember that his ministry is conducted in the presence of God. And what's more, his ministry and his life will be weighed in the balance by the great judge of all the earth. Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. The same judge who is to come again, whose kingdom Timothy proclaims as both a present reality there and then and as a future certainty. In view of all God's presence with him and his future judgment, Timothy is to preach the word. And it's worth looking again at verses 6 to 8 to remember what Paul said about that righteous judge. To see again the relevance this has for Timothy. The same judge who watches over his ministry will be the same one he stands before at the very last. Timothy is to preach. Not the easy believism message of the false teachers. Not the flights of fancy. But the message that that has been handed down to him by Paul. He is to do it in season and out of season. That is whether people want to hear it or they don't. Whether people are willing to listen to him or whether they are not. No matter what the season, Timothy is to preach the word. He is to correct false understandings of the gospel and the Bible. He is to rebuke those who are tempted to go after false teaching and who are duped by it. And he is to encourage, or a better word for that might be exhort, those in his congregation to follow the truth and not turn aside to myths and the message of false teachers. You can see that these commands, in many ways, directly parallel what Paul says about Scripture itself in verses 17. As Timothy preaches the Bible, he is to actively correct, rebuke, and exhort his people. And all this needs to be done with great patience and careful instruction or careful teaching. Timothy is to preach and teach with patience. He is to be patient with those who are going after the false teaching. He is to be patient and keep preaching when it even looks like it's a hopeless task. When people are leaving his church 
when people are being dragged away by the myths and fancies, when people are getting mixed up by the false teachers, he is to be patient and he is to preach the word. Allow the word to do its work. Paul will soon not be about. He will leave the gospel message in the hands of Timothy, his young apprentice. And Timothy must not only guard it, he must not only pass it on, he must not only correctly handle it in the face of the various false teaching, but he must preach. He must proclaim it. He must preach the word to a confused church in a hostile society, no matter what the consequences. In verse 5, Paul tells him, keep his head, or literally, to be sober. Don't give in to the panic or the pessimism, which in Timothy's circumstances might have been perfectly understandable. But Timothy is to have a sober judgment. Sober judgment of the situation in Ephesus and an understanding of what Paul talked about in these last days. He is to endure hardship for the situation he finds himself in is not exactly an easy one. Timothy must be prepared to fight the impulses of cowardice and compromise and remain true to the gospel no matter what the cost to himself. And he is to do the work of an evangelist. With a church that is losing members to the false teaching, what is he to do? Does he give in? No. He does evangelism. He preaches good news. He preaches the Bible. He preaches the message of the gospel. And he brings other people into his church and sees it grow. The gospel is still true. It's still the power of God for salvation, so he needs to preach it. Look out from among his own church and look to all those who are around him, to the lost. Preach the good news. See them converted. See them built up in the faith. And above all, Timothy is to discharge all the duties of his ministry. This is not here talking about the wide scope of the things that Timothy had to do. But it's more to do with seeing everything he was doing through to the end. With Paul now about to die, with the multiplication of false teaching in the church, Timothy needs to keep going and not give in, even when he was tempted to. It was of the most vital importance that Timothy would keep going in his ministry, do what he was called to do. He needed to preach the gospel, guard the gospel, pass the gospel on, continue in the gospel, allow that truth to liberate people. You see, in a sense, this letter is one long charge to Timothy to keep going. To suffer the hardships and keep preaching. To confront the false teaching with the truth and keep running the race. To handle the Bible correctly and present people with the truth, whether they want to hear it or not. To fan into flame that gift of God that was in him. And to do what he knew and what Paul knew he needed to do. Preach the word. Fulfill his ministry. And if that is true for Timothy in the mixed up church in Ephesus, then it is just as true, if not even more so today. With a church in this country in a mess, with no clear message to preach, it is even more vital that we preach the word. 
Don't think for a second here that when you see preach that it is limited to what goes on in the pulpit. That might be one of the main ways in which preaching happens. Indeed, I would say it must be the catalyst for all other types of preaching that take place within the church. But in home groups, there must be preaching. In one-to-ones, there must be preaching. We must have preaching in the Sunday school. We must preach in the fellowship groups. We must preach in the seniors' fellowship. It must be central to everything we do. The word must be taught to combat false understandings, to rebuke those who are ignoring it, to exhort us to godliness and to live holy lives because of the grace of God that we have received in Jesus. We must be a church that preaches the word. And you as a congregation, you must hold me, you must hold David and every one who preaches, the elders, you must hold them to account. Are they preaching the word? Not running off to myths or the latest novelties that have come on the evangelical scene. The word is sufficient. It comes from God himself. It must have, we must have confidence in it. Confidence enough to preach it. Even when people aren't interested in hearing it. Even when the times are hard and we don't see a lot of fruit. We must preach the word. When all, is, all about us tell us that Oh, doctrine divides, or the message of the cross needs to be changed, or people can't stand that view of the atonement, or we have to change it in order to make it relevant, then we must be ready to preach the word. When others are running for signs and wonders, when others want politics more than theology, we must preach the word. For it is that word that builds the church. It's that word that will lead us to repentance and faith in Christ. It's that word that will heal the broken. It will liberate the oppressed. It will encourage the depressed. It will bring hope to people who don't have any. But it won't be comfortable. It won't be without its costs. But it will be vital. That we take seriously this command to preach the word. A few weeks ago, somebody, um, somebody gave me one of the best compliments about my preaching I've ever heard. And I'll tell you what she said. She said, we come to this church, but when you hear it, when you hear, you're never comfortable. You're never comfortable when you hear the preaching. Now, whether she meant that as a compliment, I don't know. Um, But I took it as one. I took it as one because that meant I wasn't just telling you what you wanted to hear. That there was a challenge involved. That there was a cost involved. That it was causing you to think. I hope and pray that I will preach the word. And I hope and pray as a church we will make the word the central aspect of all that we do. And that we ourselves, as members, elders, deacons, ministers, or whatever, will preach it. Because the world needs to hear it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it comes from you. That it is breathed out 
by you. We thank you that it is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us, that we have it freely available for us. Help us, Lord, to use it, to have it central in all that we do, to proclaim the, the gospel. Help us not, Lord, to run after the latest novelties, the latest popular things, but help us to remain true to the gospel. As Timothy was called to, so may we preach your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.